0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, the 8th chapter. And we will focus this evening on one verse, verse 32, but I would like to go back to verse 26 and read to the end of the chapter so that we have the entire flow and context. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word, Romans 8:32. But we begin reading with verse 26. This is the Word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look again at verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us All things. People of God, Augustine is a name with which every Christian should be familiar. Even though he died in 430 AD, his theological thought is very extensive and pervades the church today and is formative for our views of the Trinity, of the grace of God, and of piety, devotion. But before becoming a Christian, he was a rebellious, young, intellectual, living a profligate life. In his Confessions, Augustine tells about that life and about how he came to faith in Christ, and especially how his mother, Monica, prayed for him, longing for his salvation. Thinking back upon one incident in Augustine's childhood, this became the occasion for reflection on the nature of sin... And his relationship to to love, to God's love. In his confessions, Augustine tells about that life. And he tells how in his youth he vandalized a pear orchard. He and his friends carried off a huge load of pears that they didn't need. And he said, "...our real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden." The evil in me was foul, but I loved it. Now, the pears were not beautiful. As a matter of fact, Augustine said that he had far better pears of his own than the ones that he stole. But he's pointing to Paul's observation that Adam and Eve, in their rebellion against God, that Adam was... Not deceived, but Eve was deceived. The occasion compels Augustine to ask the question, Why did Adam sin when he did not desire the fruit and was not deceived about the power it would give him? Now Paul makes it plain that Adam was not deceived. Adam sinned because he wanted to keep his bond with Eve. He sinned with his eyes wide open. And Augustine stole pears because he wanted to keep the friendship of his friends. In his theft, Augustine sees an echo of the first sin. And he says this Sinners seek love by moving away from the only one who can give it. Now that's profound. Sinners seek love by moving away from the only one who can give it. God is love. And he will draw us by his love, even though it takes the greatest sacrifice to accomplish that drawing, the sacrifice of his own son. God's law drives us to see our need. God's love draws us to himself. So the question that I want to briefly ask from this text, Romans 8.32, tonight, as we contemplate the love of God, is simply this question. How do you measure the love of God? How? How do you begin to measure the love of God? And I think the text itself gives a variety of answers to this question. You begin to measure the love of God, first of all, by who it is who loves us, by who loves us, and the text tells us the Father. He who did not spare his own son, of course, is a reference to the Father who did not spare his own son. It is the Father who has loved us. He did not spare His Son. Now God is tri-personal. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. God has many sons by adoption, but only one Son of His same nature, of His same essence. Is God just designated Father, or is He Father by nature? Well, the Trinity answers that question for us. He is, in His very essence, the Father. The source of redeeming love is the Father. Now, can you contemplate this without understanding that surely, as you read these words, there is profound and powerful emotion that is expressed here by Paul the Apostle? But not only profound and powerful emotion expressed by Paul the Apostle, but that we must understand that it represents profound and powerful infinite emotion on the part of God the Father. Now, the great theologians have always spoken of the impassibility of God, but you misunderstand that if you think that means that God has no emotional life. I can take you to a very, very fine passage in the works of B.B. Warfield in which he makes the statement that a God without emotion would be unworthy of worship, and I think he's right. This is vitally important. Since God is Father then the essence of sin is refusal to depend upon God as father. Had Adam not sinned, he would would have been confirmed as a son. If we come to God through the son, he promises to be our father. Hence, the essence of sin is to refuse to rely upon God as father. You can think of sin from all sorts of different perspectives, Sin is the transgression of the law, and any one of conformity thereunto, but as we study this text together tonight, the very essence of sin, I think, is seen in our refusal to rely on God as Father, to run somewhere else for love, rather than to the only source of love, to run to someone else for love, and to run away from the only one who is himself love. Which is what Jesus, of course, illustrates in the parable of the prodigal. So we begin to measure the love of God by who loves us. The Father loves us. The Father who in his essence loved his Son eternally is the one who loves us. And then we begin to measure the love of God by what it cost the Father to save us. Well, what did it cost the Father to save us? Well, the text answers that. His own Son. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So again, the unique intertrinitarian relation between the Father and the Son and, of course, the Holy Spirit is reflected on by Paul the Apostle. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, never has such love been known and experienced as the love that is found within God Himself in His own nature. The intensity of the cost is opaque to us until we contemplate Christ on the cross. And even then, how can we begin to grasp it? Now, I've told you this before, I repeat it. Even though the uniqueness of the sonship of Christ must be kept in mind when I make this statement, I still think the point is well worth making. I love my flock, I believe, as far as I can tell, as much as a minister can love his flock. But I would not give my son for any of you, I would not sacrifice him for anyone. The text tells us God sacrificed, the Father sacrificed His own Son. The measurement of the love of God, if we may so speak, is in what it cost the Father to save us from our sin. The Father did not spare His own Son, but abandoned Him on the cross. And in this assertion, Christianity, let me remind you, is absolutely unique. In understanding that we are sinners, it is unique. In proclaiming what God has done about our need, it is unique. Once C.S. Lewis was at a conference and he came into a group of men and they were debating back and forth what, what is unique about the Christian faith. And he said, oh, that's easy, the grace of God. And of course that's true, isn't it? Every other religion and philosophy is about what man can do for self-improvement or self-salvation. Christianity is about God coming down. It is about what God has done in the person of His Son. In proclaiming what God has done about our need, the Christian faith is absolutely unique. And so Christianity says you are not sinners because you sin." You sin, you are not sinners because of the things you do. That's the point. Not because of these various acts of sin. You are not sinners because you sin. You sin because you are sinners. We sin because our hearts have have been running from that love. That our hearts are depraved and sinful. Now Reinhold Niebuhr is certainly not a theologian whose theology I could commend. But there's a little story told about his son that I think is... Really, to the point. Niebuhr's seven-year-old son got into a fight, and they had a, a a maid that worked in their household. This was back in the '60s, or perhaps even the '50s, who said, "Professor Niebuhr, it's not your son's fault. It's the company he keeps." And Niebuhr responded, "It's not the company he keeps. It's his own little black heart." Well, Niebuhr was right, and that's what the scriptures teach. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for black hearts. That's the point. We are sinners, justly deserving his infinite displeasure. And he spared not his own son, not for good people, but for rebels. The scriptures tell us plainly. But as we look at the text... Romans 8.32, and we ask the question, how do you begin to measure the love of God? We have a third answer to that question. You measure the love of God by what the Father did to show His love to us. Now, read the verse again. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him freely or graciously give us all things? We measure the love of the Father, the love of God, by what the Father did to show His love for us. And what did He do? He did not spare His own Son. Only this could demonstrate what I deserved. Only this could uphold God's honor. Only the satisfaction of His divine justice by the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus on the cross Only this could spare me. Not sparing his son is what spares me. Not sparing his son is what saves me. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. God gave him up unreservedly. I recall John Murray somewhere saying that if I may so say, he gave him up with his whole heart the wholehearted suffering of the son of god is preceded by the wholehearted giving over delivering up of his son for sinners like us so in 2 corinthians 5:21 when the apostle paul in that great verse says uh, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't miss that it says that he made him to be sin. That on the cross, as he bears the sin of his people, he is in the Father's sight, sin in his sight, his own pure holy sinless son the second person of the trinity who assumed human nature is in the sight of his holy father sin and he bore in his own body and soul the pure son of God bore our sin and then in Isaiah 53 we know that verse 10 tells us yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief. So that the text speaks of God's will in crushing his own son in the place of sinners like us. My friends, when we come to this text and we see that the father spared not his own son, I don't think we begin to grasp what it means. Do you? I don't think we begin to understand what it means that the holy sinless son of God would become that which is so Completely contrary to his nature, or what it means that God's own Son, that the Father would pour out his wrath upon him in the place of sinners, I don't think we begin to understand it. Now the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.32 is reflecting Genesis 22. You recall that text. When Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his own son on Mount Moriah, and he takes his own son, his only son, and there as he is about to plunge the knife into the breast of his own son, the Lord stays his hand and provides the sacrifice. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of of the Hebrew Scriptures and Paul's language in Romans 8.32 reflect each other. The Apostle Paul is thinking about that passage. And here is the point. He is saying, in Genesis 22, Abraham was about to sacrifice his son to deliver him up. But in the end, he didn't have to. Because it pointed to the father who delivered up his son, And if we were to be saved from our sins, that's the only way in which that deliverance could take place. What Abraham did not do because God stayed his hand, the Father did to his own Son. And we are faced here with the wrath of God. One thing you must know about God is that God is good. God would not be God without being good. He is essentially good. By his essence, we mean what makes God, God. He is essentially good. Now, he is not essentially wrathful. Understand me. Within the triune nature of God, there is no place for wrath. But he is essentially good, and he is essentially just. No wrath was expressed by God in the fellowship of the Trinity, What is wrath? Wrath is the exalted reaction of His holiness to the transgression of His goodness. And we are all by nature under that wrath. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. Under condemnation, Jesus says that in John 3.18... Wrath is the exalted reaction of His holiness to the transgression of His goodness. But God in His goodness, and this is the amazing thing. God in His goodness takes the wrath upon Himself in the person of His own Son. And no degree of that wrath was abated. We're talking about a sin against God, a sinful heart deserving His infinite displeasure... And in order that God's wrath be appeased, there must be poured out the infinite wrath of God upon the Son of God. He was delivered, the text says. Delivered. That's deliberate. He was delivered to bear sin. He was delivered over to the curse of the law. He was delivered to the power of darkness. So that ultimately Octavius Winslow was certainly right when he asked the question, who delivered up Jesus to die? And he answers, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The love of the Father receives emphasis, but the love of the Son is one with the Father's love. No one took his life from him, he gave it freely. The father spared not his son for us. The son gave himself freely for love of the father and for us. But think of what that means. Way back in the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury wrote, With what jubilation shall I laud you? He's praising God in his private devotions. With what jubilation shall I laud you, when without you I face that future which horrifies me, even if it had lasted only a moment, and through you I now expect to rejoice in eternity. What is Anselm saying? Anselm was saying to think of a future without Christ and the benefits of the cross horrified Anselm. Had living without God's fellowship been for even a moment, it horrified Anselm. Does it horrify you? Does the thought horrify you? It should. But contemplate it. Christ knew for us the full weight of separation from God's fellowship and what it meant to be engulfed by God's wrath. So if Anselm is correct, and surely he is, that it should horrify my thought, my thought life and heart to consider what it would mean to be separated from him even for a moment. Somehow in those brief hours on the cross, the infinite Son of God, the infinite nature of the Son of God gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. as he was engulfed in the flames of the wrath of Almighty God. How do we measure the love of God? Well, there's another answer in the text. We measure the love of God by what the Father continues to do for us. Now, see the logic of the passage. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is not a, a text for health and wealth. That's not the point. The logic of the passage is simply this If God the Father has done the greater, will he not also do the lesser? If he has sacrificed his son for you, will he not give you what is needed in your life to take you all the way to your heavenly home? Won't he? What are these all things? Well, all things needed to glorify Him. All things necessary to see us through our Christian lives to the very end. It's the spirit of adoption. It's assistance in prayer. It's conformity to the image of God's own Son. It is the assurance of election and justification. It is the intercession of Christ. It's all that's spoken of in the verses that follow. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from that love that the Father has shown when He sent His Son to the cross and delivered Him up? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How do you measure the love of God? By what the Father continues to do for us in His rich and wonderful provision in our Christian lives. So how do you measure God's love? Well, ultimately when we come to this text, the answer is the cross. The cross is the measure of God's love. And that means that you cannot measure it. If the cross is the measure and the infinite son of God paid our infinite debt, then the love of God the Father for his son and for us, the sacrifice, the love that engulfs us is itself infinite. The love of God is immeasurable. John Murray says so beautifully, It is only in the perspective of damnation vicariously born, damnation executed with the sanctions of unrelenting justice, and damnation endured when the hosts of darkness were released to wreak the utmost of their vengeance, that we shall be able to apprehend the wonder and taste the sweetness of the love that passes knowledge, love eternally to be explored but eternally inexhaustible. The cross must be the measure by which we learn also to hate sin. We will never learn to judge and estimate sin to be what it is by looking within ourselves. Our corrupt hearts will rationalize and evade the truth about ourselves. We will only see sin to be the abominable thing that it is by recalling the Father's love in sending His Son, and by viewing that perfect Son's sacrifice on the cross, by viewing His wounds, yes, but also by recalling His unknown, unseen sufferings, veiled in the darkness as He was shrouded on the cross. His holy soul became what He detested. All for you. All for you. So do you remember Augustine's theft? The pear tree incident became the occasion in later life for him to observe. Sinners seek love by moving away from the only one who can give it. May the preaching of the cross draw you from that self-centeredness. Out of darkness into light to the love of God the Father shown in His Son and applied to the heart by the blessed Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.